0: Welcome to the Courage is a Skill podcast, where we talk to main people about fear, where has it helped us, where has it held us back, and what role does fear play in our lives? We are working to demystify fear through the power of conversation and community. Courage is a skill. Let's build it together. This episode is brought to you by Brave Fitness. Brave Fitness is a training system that extends beyond the gym and into other areas of life. We are working to strengthen our bodies and our minds while building a social community like no other. Brave Fitness is a program that we at Courage Is A Skill created and you can find Brave Fitness on the Apple App Store or at CourageIsASkill.com. We are at Courage Is A Skill on Insta and Twitter as well. This episode is also sponsored by Sea change Yoga. Sea change Yoga brings scientifically proven trauma-informed yoga and meditation to people unable to access the powerful benefits of this practice. Teaching 24 weekly classes to people in correctional facilities, recovery centers, transitional housing, and also offering free classes to veterans. Because yoga is for every body, yoga heals, and all people deserve the opportunity to find balance of mind and body. Visit seatchangeyoga.org to learn more. See yoga supporting the healing process for people who have been affected by trauma. This episode of Courage is a Skill features Dr. Jose Herrero. Jose is a neuroscientist whose work focuses on breath in relation to the brain. Normally on Courage is a Skill, we talk to main people about fear, but occasionally we'll pull in someone from out of state whose perspective can help us understand how we can take agency over fear and broaden our skill set when it comes to personal strength and development. Jose was in Maine presenting at our Breathe to Perform event at the Distance Project, and we just had to take the opportunity to share his incredible work and his incredible spirit with our audience here at Courage is a Skill. I hope that you enjoy this conversation between myself and Dr. Jose Herrero. So welcome back to Courage is a Skill, where normally we talk to main people about fear. Today, we, um, we have a guest up, a friend, a mentor, and uh, a collaborative partner that we're really honored to introduce and, and, and get to know through the show. So Dr. Jose Herrero, I'm going to let him talk about his work and um, share himself. Jose, I couldn't be more honored to have you on the podcast
1: yeah, I was just noticing my my feelings as you were talking, and uh, when you mentioned the word mentor, I already felt very <laughs> proud of it, <laughs> and to be here too. So it's an honor to be here. Um, uh, my work is um re- looking at the neurophysiology of um, breathing for a more from a more cognitive standpoint. So things like when you attend to your breathing, uh, what does it change in your brain? You know, what kind of neuronal oscillations um, change in your brain like, um, so for example um, you get like um, increases in synchrony in specific brain areas and um, how that um, over time changes your brain so I'm also interested in how um, breathing patterns can change uh, Neuronal excitability in illnesses like um, epilepsy or ADHD, and even in general anxiety. Um, how fast you can become aware that you are getting anxious, and um, that would change. That would change how quickly you can solve the problem, and. Um, there is a lot of uh, research in psychology and uh, and it, a lot of evidence that show that the breathing techniques can help uh, anxiety and epilepsy but the n- neural correlates are still a mystery and that's what um, i'm investigating and um, i have the the lack that uh, i have an um, a very interesting method because um, we can implant electrodes inside the brain uh, in epileptic patients and uh, we can directly record uh, neuronal activity from inside their brains and uh, have a very, cl- very clear data from many brain structures. And, uh, that's, yeah, that's most of my research.
0: So I I can't wait to dig into how you got started on this and what what some of the the, um, just most profound things that you found uh, useful in your own life and with your patients. Um, We got really, really just like compelled by the power of breath at the distance project at our gym. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, we were working with Dr. Kelly Starrett in, uh, he's out of um, California, but we met him in New York. And he had us do some really simple breath work, and I had never been introduced to breath work outside of the context of meditation and yoga. Mm-hmm. And so I hadn't had somebody in like a physical therapy or sports performance environment talking to me about breathing. And what he had us do, he had us all lay down, and we just did one minute of um, big inhalations and small exhalations, and then he said just, on the last breath out, retent, and you know, hold your breath and sit up when you're done. And when all of us sat up at completely different times, that little, that little glimpse into the difference physiologically between the thirty of us in the room, mm-hmm. without knowing anything else, mm-hmm. was really powerful. You know, for me and my coaches, like, wow, what's really going on here? What is it? Why can you retent longer? What, what what's happening? And that led us down this journey of like talking to thinkers around breath. Um, we ended up working with Wim Hof. Uh, Whose work I know that you're familiar with, and I'd love you mm-hmm. to, to share some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian McKenzie, and Dr. Patrick McCowan. and as a gym, we've never seen such performance enhancing, like um, connectors, like like a, like like a tool to connect people into themselves, mm-hmm. and the best feedback that we've heard is the athletic performance gains are amazing, but things like you mentioned, generalized anxiety. Mm-hmm. Improving um, the, just the ability to be present with others, um, cognitive function. We're going to talk about memory today. Mm-hmm. These are the things we really want to extract in this conversation because, mm-hmm. like, because we all breathe all the time and we can take it uh, for granted. One thing that you shared at our Breathe to Perform workshop yesterday was no matter how we breathe, we're, we're going to get some level of neural excitation. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. So,
1: the traditional view on, on breathing it was that it was the, because you don't need to think about breathing, it's automatic, it was the brain stem that it was regulating all aspects of of breathing. Uh, But the recent research, including my own research, is that the cerebral cortex is very involved even during natural breathing. So you have these um, oscillations that are tracking the breathing. In what we found it was like in 33% of of the size that we recorded from, uh, we had this, um, what is called respiration couple neuronal oscillation. So it's basically your brain is tracking your breathing. That's that during natural breathing. And what we found is when you start to do some breath control techniques, like for example, hyperventilation or deep, slow breathing, is that your brain starts to adjust uh, the rate of these neuronal oscillations to the rate of your breathing. And then that happens in, in specific areas. Like, for example, when you are hyperventilated, you have like pre- premotor cortex areas, areas in the prefrontal cortex that are synchronizing their oscillations to your breathing rate. And if you are, for example, attending to, to, your, to your breathing without changing the rate of breathing or any of the characteristics of breathing, you have other areas, like, for example, the anterior cingulate cortex, which seems to track more this breathing when you attend to it and um, and this doesn't seem to be an artifact because uh, like uh, it's a big thing when you are breathing uh, the, you have this mechanical movement of the breathing that the uh, it, uh, same with the heart that the the brain is pulsating and uh, we've done like a few controls like recording having electrodes in the white matter having electrodes in the cerebrospinal fluid that they don't seem to track these breathing related oscillations. So we are, we are hopeful that this is a real neuronal effect. And um, like some recent, recent work in, in animals ha- has shown that even recording with uh, very special electrodes that can record from different layers of the cortex. So in the cortex, you normally have like around six layers depending on which structure. But in, in most of the structures, like primary areas, like for example, auditory cortex and visual cortex, you have like six layers. Like the, the layers in the middle, they are input layers. They get the input from the outside world. And the outer and deeper layers, they are, they are more like, uh, like areas that get information from other parts of the brain. So the point is like, even when you have this method, you can see uh, respiration related oscillations at the layer level, which suggests that they are locally generated within cortical structures, you know, which means that we have, by breathing control, we have a very, very excellent
0: opportunity to change our brain. That is, pow- and that, what a powerful, powerful, powerful tool, you know, uh, the, you, as, as I'm sure you found in your work and we saw yesterday at, at the Breathe to Perform event the variance in how different people breathe and what their tolerance to carbon dioxide is mm-hmm. and whether they can activate their diaphragm is so wide and then when we work to correlate that, when we talk to people with their overall stress levels um, whether they experience anxiety whether they're having difficulty sleeping it, the correlatives are so strong that you realize that you're dealing with this powerful, powerful tool And I think from our experience, it's still early in our work in finding the communicative devices to let people understand what we're actually talking about in terms of not just doing a practice that calms you like theoretically, Mm -hmm. but a process that literally calms neural excitation and Mm -hmm. calms the nervous system. So that you have a device to say, if I'm feeling anxious at school or anxious at work, I can maybe begin to look at anxiety through the frame of an overexcited sympathetic nervous system response, overexcited neural activation, and I can actually downshift that mm-hmm. in a way that's strategic and and high agency, meaning you always have control over it. Mm-hmm. That to me seems like maybe the next paradigm in like whatever you would call, you know, personal development or performance. Mm-hmm. That we had more agency to shift how we felt. Definitely, really exciting. Yeah. So, you know, like uh, one. Uh,
1: challenge for me in this breathing is not to put breathing separate from other things. Like yes, I to love link that. Breathing. to get really yeah, deep here. Exactly, yeah. to <clears throat> link breathing and emotions. Mm-hmm. And for example, if you are feeling like anxious, that's a strong emotion. And how mm-hmm. that changes your, your breathing. And how your breathing can
0: change your state of anxiety. That was, I, I really like that you said that for everybody listening. You know, we put up when we were working out um, in the past year, we kind of, picking the brains of thinkers like yourself and we put together this idea on presenting material that showed that if, you know, I always use the example of like if a bear came, if we were all relaxing and sleeping in a a tent camping Mm -hmm. and a bear came running into the campground and startled us, it would change our respiration rate very, very quickly. We would go from a sleeping, slow, parasympathetic, hopefully diaphragmatic Mm -hmm. breathing pattern to one that was very, very excited and ready for action Mm -hmm. and that the opposite can be true, that the, you know, an event can change how we breathe, and how we breathe can change how we react to an event. Mm-hmm. And that, that correlative, that, that that back and forth, is a really, really, really powerful mm-hmm. uh, tool to own. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you, or would you, suggest that people are listening to this begin to dial into their breath to kind of understand how we're talking, or what we're talking about? Is there a breathing pattern or two that you found proves really demonstrative in how we can maybe relax or up, upshift, downshift or upshift? Mm-hmm. So I'm
1: discovering this with you, basically, mm-hmm. like uh, these uh, last days in your workshop have been very illuminating. For example, in the challenge that we did, the uh, run, running, where you had to run uh, four times with nasal breathing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and like with one, one minute of break, and you had to do for the first 30 seconds of the break, you can breathe uh, with the mouth and then for the last 30 seconds you breathe nasal so i had like an insight towards the third run Mm -hmm. which it was like uh, the nasal breathing it was feeling like it was warming my body from from the inside out and my chest and um, i could feel like a very nice feeling of control and warmth on my joints just through the this nasal breathing and i and I also, like, a, a very strong control of my thoughts in the sense, like, of a kind of a feeling of relief, like, oh, this is kind of like the first time I'm feeling no negative thoughts, no thoughts other than pure running and
0: pure connection with the performance of my body. I, I love that, Jose. You know, the, the athletic um, elements of this, which we can talk about, we can go really down rabbit holes on... Um, Aerobic and anaerobic respiration. But our main goal is, you know, if we can tune somebody into like a flow state, because you and I were talking about that state yesterday, Mm -hmm. right? That term of like a flow state, a state of being, like a pure presence in the moment, Mm -hmm. almost like an athletic meditation or like expediting, Mm -hmm. you know, a meditation session where you found absolute presence and clarity in a moment. If we could do that with our athleticism, all of a sudden we're enjoying our training. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're learning deeper lessons in the training other than Mm -hmm. how much we can suffer Mm -hmm. or how much we can outrun somebody. Mm -hmm. We're hopefully learning about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we've been using a lot of nasal breathing in the workouts, but even for people listening in terms of, like, people sitting there on the other end of the microphone, it's our belief that if we start with simple ideas and principles around cadences and patterns, patterns of inhalation and exhalation, and areas that we can hold. You know, it's a really common misconception is the idea that a deep breath would calm you. Everyone says, mm-hmm. take a deep breath. And what we know is a deep breath doesn't calm. A deep breath is, is a pretty excited breathing pattern. You know, if somebody came in, again, we use a bear comes running into the camp, mm-hmm. uh, campground, I would take a, a deep breath mm-hmm. to ready myself for action. But those slow inhalations, exhalations, and breath holds for most people have a tremendously calming effect. And it's my belief that we're not going to need more complex patterns to at least begin to present this to the public, Mm -hmm. but using those simplistic structures. Mm -hmm. We used a pattern yesterday that is so simple, but I would challenge anybody on the other end of the podcast to try it, Mm -hmm. is to put on a three minute clock and to simply sit in a tall position where you can actually access your, your breathing musculature. I like to wrap my hands around my bottom ribs, feel those ribs expand. Relax. You put a clock on or a timer and take a five-second nasal inhalation and a five-second exhalation and repeat that basic cadence for three minutes. We can almost guarantee that you'll feel some perceptible shift in your state of being. For some people, most people, I would say, would relax them or bring them to a place of clarity. For some people, it might excite them a bit. Mm -hmm. But I think for anybody here listening that wants to kind of feel what we're talking about, Try that pattern for three minutes and report back to anybody you're listening to this with or post in the comments, did I feel different? And if I did feel different, then I have a tool to feel different in any moment. Maybe you're driving in traffic. Maybe you're preparing for a presentation. And then, of course, we can shift those breathing patterns and make them a little more complex. But for people listening to this for the first time, I think if we can begin to, a mentor of ours, uh, Brian McKenzie from Power Speed Endurance, had a great metaphor and he said you know breath is a remote control to the brain and we use that a lot in our presentations mm-hmm. not the only remote control but a remote control mm-hmm. would you agree with that with that statement uh, as a metaphor metaphorical
1: yeah analogy? yeah I completely agree and uh, not not the only uh, control remote but a very powerful one you know like um, I see many ways to connect to your body one is also to share your fears yeah you know share like, for example, your reluctance to try these breathing exercises. You know, that could be one fear that you, you could say, like, for example, oh, why am I going to do this? Why, why not? I mean, would, you could try um, and
0: you could also examine, not try and examine your reluctance to not try. That's really, really, you know, a question we ask on the Brave program, and Dr. Herrero is a part of that program. Um, you can find him on the, on the actual challenges, challenging all of us uh, with, with simple exercises that we can do uh, with one another. A question we always ask on the Brave program is what's holding you back from anything, you know, from anything that you're really, really, um, when we envision like the version of ourselves that we're most proud of, most fulfilled by, most excited by, the goals that we have, what holds us back from, from uh, taking steps to achieve that? And that reason that we built this podcast is one of the things that we keep finding to be a barrier is fear. And I haven't heard, um, or I'd like to be part of conversations that deconstruct fear from a standpoint that's a little bit more scalable and like trainable. You know, at the Distance Project, we build training systems. And I feel like if we asked all of the audience to define the word fear, there's something beautiful in the fact that we'd probably get a thousand different answers. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like it leaves us in a position where it's very hard to build a trading model to discuss fear and talk about fear Mm -hmm. in a way that we might overcome fears that hold us back. So I'd love to pose a definition of fear that we've been using and run it by you and kick it with you just about fear from here on and share our fears and our, our, you know, reason for coming together through this podcast medium with the audience. Mm -hmm. So we, we, this is largely extracted by some of the work that we did with, um, Dr. Andrew Huberman out at Stanford university who he was on a podcast, um, he was talking about the idea that if we could improve our levels of healthy risk tolerance or our, our ability to take healthy risks, that we can really advance our species by um, just engaging with risk more in our lives where the payoffs could be advantageous. Mm-hmm. Starting a, a business, asking someone on a date, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it is that requires us to examine risk but overcome that risk to get something really important. Mm-hmm. So through Brave, when we talk about fear for a large part of the program, it's not like just like some motivational program, like, live your dreams, you've got this. It's like, okay, well, if, if we can look at this idea of courage, because this podcast is called Courage as a Skill, courage as the areas of our life, or courage as the ability to take higher, uh, develop higher healthy risk tolerance, and then we can look at fear as the areas of life where we have maybe the lowest risk tolerance, then maybe we can pick fears that are really holding us back from very important things mm-hmm. and say, how would I develop my risk tolerance around this fear? Does it take a change in mindset, a change in action, or both? Mm-hmm. So on the simplest level, you know, let's say you have a fear of running at night. And it's an important fear because you're going to run ultra marathons or you want to. And it's holding you back. What micro steps can you take to introduce yourself to that risk? You probably wouldn't just grab a headlamp or a flashlight and run through the mountains all night. You might start stepping onto a dark trail with sufficient lighting and preparation before you know it, you start to overcome the fear by increasing your exposure to the risk, mm-hmm. how do you think about fear um, and how would you define fear if, you know, if, if chatting about it and what are your thoughts on that definition of trying to look at risk tolerance and saying can we improve it together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so about fear,
1: what I find is very interesting is how um, I react uh, with anger when I have fear. And I find myself that I don't understand uh, this anger. You know, I don't understand why it comes so strong. And when I have time to breathe on it and to think about it, to meditate on it, then I realize that it might be some fear component. And um, breathing, actually, and meditating, it helps me a lot to, to have these realizations. And um, in a way, it, this is like to take micro steps you know like a, a way that helps me to accept that um, my anger is actually rooted in a fear and um, and then take take i mean acceptance can be considered as acceptance of your of your limitations can be considered you know a very important starting point to start to take um, you know to to start to take risk assessments that actually change your behavior. You know, like, as Dave was pointing out, uh, you can start by, you know, like, if you have fear to spiders, you can visualize a spiders instead of uh, putting yourself into an elevator with a spider.
0: Right, right. Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I love that analogy, you know, in that, like, I think, you know, if we look at the most common fears holding people back, and maybe we're just kind of making this up, but people, what are the things you hear, public speaking, um, you know, fear of financial loss, fear of I haven't really seen, like, scalable training programs that introduce those risks with other people in the community. I know, like, think about all of us walking in a large group and how much more confident we're prone to feel. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're walking down a road alone, and, mm-hmm. you know, and you, and you feel isolated in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you What do you feel about the, because you're doing some really, I can't wait to talk about the stuff that you're doing with Human Rhythms in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. What do you feel about the power of community in overcoming fears and taking on risks? Mm-hmm.
1: So I think the, the fact of sharing is so powerful, you know, like um, many times we undermine that. We think that, um, you know, I'm a one-man driver. Mm-hmm. I can do this by myself. And then you realize that um, sometimes what you get with the community, <laughs> you cannot get it anywhere else. You know, by seeing your deepest fears into somebody's eyes by you know, sharing your deepest fears in front of everybody and by hearing the fears of others and seeing how similar they are to yours. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's kind of the power of the
0: community. The, for everybody listening, there's a, there's a wonderful video that we're gonna link to in the show notes of Jose and a group that he's part of called Human Rhythms in Brooklyn. And it's an incredibly powerful video that we've showed to almost everybody at the gym on several occasions of Jose talking about dance, and how easily it is to dance and to just be in your own body, in your own world, but not to really connect with the other, and and what they do is this practice of dancing, looking into one another's eyes, and I'd love for you to describe, first of all, what is Human Rhythms, because it's an incredible project, and also, how would you describe for the audience what that practice of of eye contact has brought to your dancing? Mm
1: Yeah, so. Human Rhythms came about after, um, I spent like um, maybe a a year going to Five Rhythms, so Five Rhythms is a place where there is like 120 people in downtown in Manhattan, and then you, there is not allowed to speak, not allowed to talk, well not allowed to speak, yeah, not allowed to smoke or drink alcohol, and and then you just go there and you dance with people like half, half naked kind of, you know, like uh, just free movements and... And then, uh, yeah, you do a lot of eye contact with the people and, and then I realized that um, I wanted to develop something that is rooted on that, but it has also the component of that you also learn a skill, a skill of becoming a better dancer in relation to better motor skills, you know, better coordination with the music and also better connection with the people in in fire rhythms yeah because there is 120 people you learn to connect to to the other people but there is no structure on it you know what human rhythms brings you is a bit more structure in the sense that there are exercises where you are basically forced into looking to other people's eyes and to come out of your own body to try to connect to your body to another body and um, so my experience is that um, by trying to force yourself a bit to be in connection to others, that you learn how your body is more rigid, how your body starts to loosen, how your breath changes. And um, basically you come from a, a week of stress at work to all of the same being forced into looking at somebody's eyes and dance with that person when the only thing you want is just to, you know, to enjoy the music in your own world. And uh, by looking into somebody's eyes and dancing, you get such a strong break from the weak. You know, it's kind of what David was talking about, the effect of the of the group and being in connection with a group. It's just, you know, it's so much more powerful than just being on your own dancing, you know, in your own world. And, um, you know, I, I, I love to be on my own dancing on my own world, but I experienced that uh, my dancing skills and my knowledge about my body and my, my, my mind is uh, fourfold
0: if I do this in connection to others. I love that, Jose. I, I encourage everybody to definitely, if you're in the New York area and just online, check out what Jose is doing because it's really powerful work. What role did fear play in you getting involved in that? How nervous were you or fearful when you first started doing that? Mm-hmm. And how does that change now? Do you still feel... Um, how do, how do you feel when you first started that? and How do you feel now in terms of fear, comfort, and
1: mm-hmm. so in the beginning, I started because um, I've done neuroscience for the last uh, 15 years and um, I basically work so hard. You know, I did my PhD in England and um, actually I did two PhDs, one in, in cognitive psychology and one in, neuros- in monkey neurophysiology. And I was just like, okay, my first PhD hasn't been good enough. I need a second PhD, you know, and I need a PhD from a very good lab. And then I came to Columbia University and I did my postdoc. So I basically kind of like overworked a bit. And then I remember once coming back from a conference in San Diego where I said, okay, I'm going to spend these eight hours of flight from San Diego back to New York. Just thinking about how it would be a happy day in my life, and then um, I wrote down and I said, "Okay, happy day in my life is to do neuroscience because I love neuroscience, but also to have like at least two hours for something that I love." And I I love dancing, I love meditation. So since then, I start to have maybe yeah three years ago, I start to have these two hours for my dance practice, or you know web design for the project, or I know it's not too much you know it's just the it's just the beginning but kind of gave me a sense of control and relief and to allow myself to do something that that i love other than neuroscience and then and in the beginning you know of course i was you know like i had judgments like you know like i'm when i started i was 37 you know i always like love dancing all my life but i was thinking "Mm." you know like it's one thing that you go to day parties in central park and people ask you oh do you teach you know that's one thing but the other thing is to really teach and to you know basically not not really teach but to facilitate and to promote like surrender leadership so that's what is kind of the hardest for me like to open a space where you know, you give the same Mm -hmm. level of authority to everybody that shows up there that has a talent to share, Mm -hmm. you know, where you have to just step back and say, you know, that person can teach this better than me. Mm -hmm. Let it it do it. You know, and in one hand it's scary, but in the other hand it's super rewarding that you are learning from, you know, from people that if somebody knows how to do something better than you, then do it. And if also, even if you know how to do better something than that person, but if that person is better to teach another person a skill, then you have to have the courage to step back and Mm -hmm. let them do it. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. You know, we had a great conversation. We were walking around the old port in Portland last night, um, getting some gelato. And we were just talking about fear in association to meeting new people and how you meet new people and how you start to detect for threat. And that almost mm-hmm. the first two things that people do is they detect for, you know, how can this person hurt me? Can this person hurt me? Mm-hmm. And we start to let walls down over that idea of, um, is somebody a threat? Okay, they're not a threat. Then what role did they play? And we start to do all of these assessments so quick and on such a subtle level that you it's non it's subconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a, a, another... Rabbit hole that we can even go really, really more deeply down into. And what is judgment? What is self-worth? Where does it come from? Mm -hmm. What role do others play as mirrors in our lives Mm -hmm. um, as we really look to know ourselves? Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, If a question that we ask everybody on the podcast, and you can take this any direction that you want to, any way you want to go with it. But as we look at fear, what would you do, Jose, what would you do if you had Mm -hmm. no fear?
1: (sighs) That's that's a very good question. Like um, is Like for example, I relate that questions to: if you would have money now for the rest of your life, what would you do? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I think if I would have money, I would just buy a big van. Mm-hmm and put the human rhythm screw there, inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go yeah. to different countries, mm-hmm. go to visit different experts, like a salmon expert, yeah. go there for a week and learn the stuff that this salmon expert has to teach, it, to teach us, share that with the people, and uh, go to another place, go to another place. And do that, I would do that for the next five years, you know, my life, but the thing is, we talked about this, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you, 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 you explained a really, really important process that I want to actually make sure that we do cover, which is this idea of just looking in each other's eyes and circling. And you, you talked to Lex and I about that as an example. And I'd love to hear what, maybe, what brought you there and then you, why you would only do it for five years. When do you come to, when do any of us come to the end of a growth curve and need to find different mediums for self exploration? Mm-hmm. Repeat the question. So, um, would you share the the practice of circling with the group? Mm-hmm. What role it's played in your life, right? And just kind of like you did with um, with Wax and I in New York, mm-hmm. as one medium of self exploration.
1: Yeah. So circling, it was um, it was very important for for my experience and to know to know to know my body better, in the sense that um, I always thought that uh, you know sports, meditation, and um, breathing control, it would it could be enough for, for me to know myself. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that the uh, circling where you stare into somebody's eyes and um, you basically, um, talk about any feeling that it comes out. Like it has to be very raw feeling, not embellished feeling like, uh, you know, you're in a conversation with, with somebody, not only staring at the eyes, but you can talk about, uh, things that arise. And uh, you can say, like, uh, what is that person telling you? What is the raw feeling on you? And um, by revealing those raw feelings, deeper and deeper feelings come up and also somehow um, explanations for those feelings, like deeper explanations that you before never, never, never thought about and also like deeper deep deep fears that you have and um, also one thing that it comes out a lot is how you change your perspective in terms of empathy you know by acknowledging your fears you start to become and unseen the fears in in other people and also seeing how your judgments are way off you know many of your judgments are rooted in in fear those elements they start to give you a more like a deeper understanding of of your emotions Mm -hmm. you know and um, also like your childhood you know how you know you are part um, to blame for for you, you know, for your problems now but also how you other people play a role
0: in it. It sounds like one of the, you know, one one of the things we talk a lot about at Brave and at The Distance Project is empathy and it being Mm -hmm. this, uh, we can go down a long conversation on empathy, but what a beautiful way to truly find empathy when you explain this process to me and Lex of just sitting across from someone, looking them right in the eyes and talking about your deepest fears and Mm -hmm. as you said, hearing theirs back and hearing theirs reflected. And the similarities in fear. Mm I thought that when we think about training practices, Mm -hmm. you know, if anybody thinks that, like, you know, like CrossFit is hard or, like, you know, like Mm -hmm. running is hard, that sounds like a really hard training practice Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. great return and Mm -hmm. very deep return. Um, And, you know, I like how you pointed out in this idea of no fear, maybe doing something for five years. I think I'd love your thoughts on the ways that maybe one of the scariest things any of us can do is develop a practice, become attached to the practice, mm-hmm. and move on to that next practice that truly puts us on a growth trajectory where mm-hmm. maybe we have to leave back a part of an identity mm-hmm. or something that we've associated with to find the next great growth mm-hmm. trajectory. Do you feel, what, what do you feel is your next great growth environment?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good question that I was um, talking to a friend about this the other day, how, for example, like uh, departing from what you've been, for what people knows you about, for what you are good at, you know, and and maybe becoming, you know, somebody that uh, basically, you know, people don't value, how scary that is, you know, and... So, for example for me it would be very difficult to think about myself as a for introduce myself jose the human rhythms kind of uh, guru, guru kind of thing mm-hmm. instead yeah. of jose the neuroscientist on breathing and attention and yeah. you know yeah. that kind of change of identity is um, yeah at the moment for me is is
0: very scary i love it brother I can't wait to watch the whole journey that you know that you're on with human rhythms, with your work in neuroscience, um, and with this ongoing conversation that you and I and all of us will be engaged in mm-hmm. around our fears mm-hmm. and supporting one another. And Charlie, truly creating a supportive community where we're talking about fear both scientifically, strategically, and communally, mm-hmm. so we can hopefully help each other stay on the edges of growth environments. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that I saw in Brave, it was like this really nice um, attempt to merge, uh, like physical performance with emotions. I mean, that was the first time like uh, I see, you know, a a training program of people that is really good at sports, like ultra marathonians to, you know, be encouraged to talk about the emotions. And for me, it was very interesting because I appreciate a lot the sports people and I am a sports people myself. And uh, when I hear somebody that has been doing an ultramarathon, talking about uh, their fears and emotions openly, that's much more powerful than somebody that hasn't gone through the same self-sacrifices. And um, yeah, I mean, in Brave, that's a very unique challenge that I've seen. So you are mixing kind of circling with sports. Well, you know, a a
0: thing that led us to that is, you know, we all got into these extreme sports. And you know, ultra-marathons, CrossFit, we have people who do MMA, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, and not everybody in the group does a, a sport, but there's a lot of people, I think, who've migrated onto the Brave Fitness platform because they were looking for challenges in sport specifically. And then you meet the challenge, you run the mm-hmm. ultra-marathon, you know, you, you have an MMA fight, you, you, you do the, uh, you know, the long-distance cycling, whatever your thing is what, that, that pushed you, and then, you know, you do it again, and you do it again. Mm-hmm. And then you, hopefully we all ask, well, am I still in a growth environment? Why did I come to the starting line of this race? What was I hoping to find? Mm-hmm. And did I actually find it there? Mm-hmm. And if I did, then where do I go next? What am I looking to find? Mm-hmm. And I know that, I mean, for myself, with ultra-marathoning became an identity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then we all ask each other, well, again, are you still in a growth environment there? Um, so I, I love, as we all seek out that next thing that challenges us as deeply as the sport event did, that we build this social community where we're holding each other not only accountable to what we said we wanted to do and be, but holding each other in support. Mm -hmm. And saying, you know, life, God, there's there's so much to be scared of, but there's so much to be gained when we can build the skill of courage together. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. uh, brother, I couldn't be more honored to have you on the show, to have you here uh, at Breathe to Perform in Maine, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't be more excited about the journey together going forward. Thank you very much. much. That's it.